Uh, good evening, everyone in person and on Zoom, and thank you for joining us for another evening lecture with Francis Tavern Museum. Um, as a reminder, tonight's lecture is being recorded, so if you enjoy, you want to share it with someone who couldn't be with us this evening, um, it will be emailed to you and available on our website and our iTunes and wherever you can find podcasts. Remember, if you are joining us virtually and you have a question during the lecture, please leave them in the Q&A or the chat box. We will be monitoring that during the lecture, so don't worry about saving until the end. If you are in person during the time for questions, you'll be able to just raise your hand and moderate yourself. Um, we will try to get to as many questions as we can for both in person and virtual. As always, the, speak the views of the speaker are their own and do not necessarily represent the Sons of the Revolution in the state of New York Incorporated or its Francis Tavern Museum. Now let me introduce tonight's speaker. Adam Van Doren is a writer and artist who teaches at Yale University, where he is also an associate fellow. He's the author of four previous books, including The House Tells a Story, Homes of the American Peasants, and his paintings are included in the Museum of Fine Arts Boston and the Art Institute of Chicago, among others. Tonight, he will be discussing In the Founders' Footsteps, Landmarks of the American Revolution. And if you are here with us tonight, we have the book available, and if you're visiting the museum in the near future, it will be in our gift shop for a while. So I will now turn it over to you, Adam. Okay, thank you very much. Can you all hear me? I'm a little taller, so. Uh, how about that? All right. Um, well, first of all, Sarah, thank you for inviting me. And uh, it's a great privilege to be here. I mean, what better place than to talk about the revolution? <laughs> I mean, I've done a few venues, but not at the place where Washington uh, was, even though it's a replica. Uh, we know he was somewhere, his spirit, on this ground uh, 250 years ago. So uh, it's exciting to be here. I hope to channel some of that energy in the talk uh, today. Um, I thought I would give a brief introduction, show some of these uh, images from the book. It's, as she said, a combination of my essays as well as uh, paintings. So you're getting two for one. Um, and then, um, I'm going to go through, as I said, several uh, images from the book, just very brief one uh, discussion on them because it would take forever. And also want you to buy the book. So you'll read more in depth. Each essay is about a thousand words on each of uh, the landmarks that I've chosen. And then um, I'd be glad to uh, sign some books. I will also read one excerpt from one of the chapters to give you a flavor of the text, which you can't necessarily tell from just the images. Um, this book is in some sense a sequel to an earlier book that was mentioned of Holmes' American Presence that I collaborated with the historian David McCullough. I'm sure some of you have read his books if you're here tonight, and avid historians. Um, and uh, so it whetted my appetite when I did some of the homes of the colonial presidents uh, to do a larger book on that subject. Uh, at first, I was thinking, what have I got myself into? The revolution is a huge topic. Uh, and you, I can understand why historians spend their entire lives, because uh, uh, it's, it's, there's so many facets to it and, and so much literature. Um, and I almost thought maybe I made a mistake. Uh, but then I realized, you know, a lot of history isn't just about wars and politics and government. It's also about arts and culture. And I felt like uh, I had a background that and certainly uh, as an artist and, uh, and writer. And uh, so I tried to, when I could, to include that in the book. Uh, it is a lot about government and wars, the revolution, of course. But there are opportunities where I could broaden that. And I felt I could come from a comfortable place as an authority. I did do a lot of research. so. I think you'll find uh, that in the book, I hope. Uh, I set aside 100 books. I spent a year reading them. And then I said, this isn't David McCullough. I'm not writing another issue of evolution. I'm writing it from my personal viewpoint as well, because I visited these sites that I chose and then decided about writing about my personal experience at them. Um, but I want to speak with intelligence. And uh, I thought that would be a richer uh, book. Um, 
both works that uh, I just mentioned, the revolution, the, the book on the, on the uh, presidential homes in this, uh, the, the main theme is the importance of being at the place. It sounds cliche perhaps, but it's very exciting like it is here, but even more so when it's the actual building, when you are touching the same banister that Thomas Jefferson did at, at, at Monticello, some of you have been there, walking Mount Vernon and, uh, and be in the same room where Washington would have uh, been, or uh, been uh, in Germantown, where there's a structured printed manor where a battle was fought and the house is exactly the same. There are even bullets, no, they don't call them bullets, I guess musket shells, uh, marks on the stores. So it, you, it, you're just experiencing in a much richer way than you know, YouTube or Google Image. Uh, but um, you even get it when you go into colonial houses as I'm a bit taller and bump your head on a beam uh, that's only six feet tall or whatever people were shorter back then, you really get a feeling of what uh, the uh, visceral experience is. Um, but uh, I thought I would uh, explain a little bit how I chose the sites. Uh, they're about 30, 32 in all. Uh, I thought I'd break it down to about half sites that maybe people are familiar with more than other, uh, Bunker Hill, uh, even some sites uh, here in New York that are, are more well known. And then I thought I would intersperse it with the other half of sites that people don't generally know about, even uh, budding historians, so that both readerships might uh, find something interesting from the book. I also interviewed people when I uh, went to these sites, got a flavor of something that might be fresh and not just regurgitated history, um, to feel like I would have some living history in a way of people who are experiencing the actual sites now, not necessarily bystanders visiting, but more the rangers in some of these places or historians or curators, so they could share their stories and their experiences. I was surprised to learn how many sites were right here in New York. And many of you know that, but the Morris Jumel Mansion, one of the oldest houses in New York, on what's known as Coogan's Bluff originally, I don't know what it's known as now, but um, that house you can visit, of course, here, Francis Tavern. Uh, Washington apparently read the Declaration of Independence to troops in the City Hall Park area. Um, you have uh, remains of forts uh, along the Hudson. Um, and uh, what else? Got Hamilton's house uptown, which I mentioned in the book. Uh, and that's very much intact. The ship's been moved a couple of times. Anyone here been to Hamilton's house? Okay, good. That's in the book. And also, I think people need to know, very appropriate being the aura of Washington here, that uh, not many people think about or know that George Washington lived in Manhattan for two years. Uh, he lived in what was the first White House. It wasn't looking like the White House that we know today, but when he was president, he lived in New York. This was the Capitol. And he worshiped at St. Paul's Chapel. And uh, there was a pew called Washington's Pew for many years, which I think it's still there. Um, so that's something that I don't think uh, many people think about. I don't know if he grabbed a taxi from time to time, but he, he did live here. I also uh, was interested to really explore more, with my own knowledge, how significant the French were in the uh, revolution and how their effort to help us really was pardon the slang, but a game changer. Uh, without them, I've read enough books, and maybe you already know this, that there was no way they were going to be successful. The money and the troops, and they, the Americans had no Navy at all. They had one ship. John Paul Jones had one ship, I mean, that was it. And how are you gonna tackle the, the, the British uh, without that? So that all that was very instrumental. Now to be sure, the French hated the English, so they had ulterior motives. They've been fighting for 500 years, but credit where credit is due. And uh, that collaboration is very interesting. I touch on the book and maybe I'll make a reference here, which is, I found very interesting to learn about. I don't remember learning that much in my high school about that French connection. <clears throat> and uh, I should add though, when I say they had an alternative motive, the exception would have been Lafayette, who was a straightforward patriot who 
who didn't have much ulterior motive except that he believed in freedom and independence of the American cause. And that was very genuine. And he was a very close friend of Washington, a sort of a son he never had. Um, I would say a couple other things before we go into the slides is uh, the significant role of uh, the South in the uh, battle for independence. Uh, by sheer numbers, uh, one could even count as many battles in the South as the North. It's not as famous or big, but there was a lot of, uh, a lot of action down there. And uh, it was, uh, those were the turning points. The British basically are halfway through the war. I'm simplifying a little bit same time, but they were running into a stalemate. They had gotten various things, Philadelphia back and forth, and New York, they only had the lower Manhattan, and they were getting frustrated. You know, they wanted this to be over quickly. Um, and uh, they decided to go south and take those areas. Uh, and they met with resistance, as I'm sure you would uh, gather. I think, lastly, the thing that is so astonishing that it's still hard every time I think about it is, how did the Americans think they even had a chance in this thing? I mean, when they signed the Declaration of Independence in Philadelphia, they were fully aware, they didn't have Instagram or whatever, I don't even have Instagram, <laughs> uh, but they knew that in New York Harbor, there were 200, if not more, British warships sitting off of Staten Island, and they had none, with 40,000 men from the British soldiers. How could they pop? They didn't have an army. So when they, you know, they say they um, risk their lives for all of this or whatever the term is, I, I should know it offhand, uh, pledge their lives, uh, you realize it's true and they had a lot to lose. These were young men. The youngest man, uh, the average age was 43 of the, of the founding fathers who did the Constitution, I mean the Declaration. Jefferson was only 33 years old and he had 10,000 acres, I think more than that, 20,000. And they, they were not really affected by the Stamp Act. I mean, big deal for them to, to pay a little extra, you know. So uh, they were really uh, gambling on this and, and knew that they had a, a real chance to be uh, hanged from the rafters, right? All right, well, let's go into some of these images. That's the cover. Uh, for those of you who are artistically minded, I did another version of the same picture inside the book on white paper. That's done on a cream colored paper with white uh, gouache. This is a map that's included in the book. I'm not gonna spend any time on it. It's too hard to read uh, from there, but it shows uh, all the sites that I visited, uh, mostly in the 13 colony area. Uh, so it's a reference that might find useful when you read the book. This is Colonial Williamsburg. Um, how many of you been there? Oh, great. Uh, yeah, that was once the capital of the colonies and extraordinary place. I was there with my parents and then with my children years later. And for those who think it's sort of a little Disneyland with, uh, you know, figurines of uh, bobbleheads in Washington, I suppose they exist somewhere there, but that's not what it's really about. It's an extraordinarily uh, important educational uh, place where the actors who play the characters never leave their characters. So they don't sit uh, bench with a little kid and say, oh, can I give you an ice cream cone? No, they, they stay as Patrick Henry, if they're Patrick Henry, and talk to them as if they were from the time. And these are very educated uh, actors. They know their stuff. If you ever have a chance to uh, step out of character, I, I just said they don't, but if you talk about their background, they might. And I learned also just from research how much effort they put into this was billions and billions of dollars to transform Colonial Williamsburg into the museum that you see now. Uh, the Rockefellers were involved in that. This was a dilapidated uh, village town that um, is now an extraordinary uh, museum. So this is a map of a lesser known um, march that uh, Benedict Arnold of all people, when he was a, a favorite general of Washington's before he defected, he went before the revolutionary, uh, before the Declaration of Independence, he took a band in 1775 to attack a garrison of Canada uh, that Washington gave his uh, blessings to. And they went up and it was supposed to be a short march, but they were going through terrain they didn't know well and through Maine. And uh, a thousand men left, I think only half survived, many of them eating 
their own dogs and shoe leather. By the time they got there, half starving, and then winter set in, it took too long to get up there, and they were not successful. But it was a valiant march, and and Brendan McDonald really showed his mettle. And we don't like to think of that now, but that's a little map of the journey. This is, of course, uh, Paul O'Neill, and I'm cut off by something at the top of the uh, PowerPoint. Um, but uh, that's, of course, uh, in Boston. And he wasn't the only messenger to. Um, no, we're going to make an adjustment on the high tech stuff. I would say that Paul Revere was not the only writer that night. There were others, including a woman, maybe more than that, a woman. But uh, he is known for the uh, great good graces of art because the poet Longfellow wrote his poem about. Revere many years later. And I guess Paul Revere rhymes with some words that Longfellow had. But uh, Revere was not known much after he passed away. He would have been known probably more as a silversmith. And his stuff is very valuable uh, to this day. But uh, he was uh, the theme and the center of this poem that Longfellow wrote that all, did I say Longfellow? Yeah, right. that all the kids grow up uh, reading. Um, so he's had a second life and a third life right now. Now I'm pressing this button, but it's not moving. So see, this is high tech stuff. We should have stuck with the full pen. Uh, I press this, it's not advancing. Okay. Uh, see the next one? Okay. So this is a building that shows that's in Philadelphia, right behind Independence Hall, called Carpenter's Hall. Uh, also not known as much, although surprising because it's so close to Independence Hall. But this is where the first Continental Town was actually met uh, before they went to Independence Hall. They met on that first floor and they closed the shutters so that the British who were wandering around always uh, wouldn't hear their plots to uh, take over the government. Um, but uh, it's an exquisite building, and uh, it's now a museum you can visit. I love the architecture of it, and I did that painting on site. This is a, uh, some of the images in the book. I thought I didn't want to just do buildings or battlefields, so, but I had to, of course, recreate figures uh, from the time. Some of these were taken from paintings. I did little details and details from existing works, but this is from the Battle of Long Island, uh, which also known as the Battle of Brooklyn. This is a house that you can visit, and somebody said they're from Staten Island. Ah. Yeah, it's the Phillips or Conference House, uh, very far at the end of uh, Staten Island. Um, and uh, that's exactly the way it was. Uh, and a very important building in history because that's where the British offered the Americans shortly after the Declaration of Independence was signed and the Battle of Brooklyn was over to have a, uh, an effective peace treaty in Olive Branch and say to the three emissaries from Continental Congress, Franklin, John Adams, and Edward Rutledge from South Carolina, General Howe met them for tea and crumpets or whatever. Uh, he said, basically, you know, you guys aren't winning this. You never will. Why don't you just pretend this never happened and no one's going to get hurt and you just go back to your farms or your fancy uh, estates and we'll call this a day. But the Americans didn't buy that. And Franklin said, you burnt our houses. We signed the declaration. There's no turning back. You go home. I'm paraphrasing. But uh, it all happened there. This is that other image of Independence Hall, uh, which is done, as I say, on white paper versus the other uh, style. Where's that one from the cupboard? Beautiful building. This is. Uh, Nassau Hall in Princeton, uh, in New Jersey, also the earliest building on the Princeton University campus. Uh, a battle was fought here, not a huge battle, but it was significant because it turned the tide at the time. The, the, the Americans were losing badly the first battles of the war. And uh, this one they were victorious at. The British hold themselves up in this uh, garrison. The walls are very thick, I mean, this thick. Uh, it was the tallest building in the colonies at the time. Uh, you can go visit this building. It's there at Princeton. I'm sure they'll let you in. Um, and uh, story goes that Alexander Hamilton, who was head of artillery, uh, aide de camp to uh, Washington, 
One of his men shot a cannonball through the window and it hit a portrait of George III and fell out. That's somebody? It's not George Washington. Okay, this is uh, John Adams's house. And uh, what's uh, exciting to visit uh, John Adams's house is that the artifacts in this house are some of the best preserved of any of the historic sites that I visited. The Adams family continued to live in the house for several generations, and they were great protectors and stewards of the legacy. So they're not like, unfortunately, you go to some of these homes and the buildings are there, but there's a lot of replicas. Uh, those are the original things of John and Abigail. Uh, and they eventually just transferred, I think, to Massachusetts government or whoever became preservationists. But the, the Adams family, I think, lived all the way through it. Nobody else owned it until the government. Um, and um, it's not on a thousand acres anymore. It's in Quincy, Massachusetts, where it originally was, a town called Braintree at the time. But uh, it's still on a 10 acres or so, but the house is what you kind of see. This is uh, a, a painting I did uh, showing um, this very epic march that was done by one of Washington's generals to collect cannon from Fort Ticonderoga. Uh, to set up in Boston to fend off the British uh, sailing ships in the harbor. Uh, it, 26 cannons, and the reason I went all the way to Fort Ticonderoga is there was no way the Americans were going to make cannon. They didn't have forges. Remember, the British were controlling everything. They didn't have the industry here, except for blacksmiths, little blacksmith shops that made horseshoes, you know. Um, so these cannons were left over from the French Indian War. They were sitting at Fort Tidewinder. They went to retrieve them. And bringing 26 cannon doesn't sound like much. If you had North American van lines, it would have taken you 12 hours. But here it took them three and a half weeks because they're driving them into the snow and disassembling them. You know, So you're dealing with very primitive technology. But they put them on the hill in Boston, I believe. I forgot, maybe Dorchester Heights. But, but uh, the British saw these overnight, when they woke up one night, they saw these 26 cannons high above on this ridge. And there's no way a British ship can shoot a cannonball up. It's, it's not going to go very far. And they knew they were uh, toast. And they left Boston. So it worked. But it was General Knox who did this epic journey. This is a building that looks a little bit like the um, structure that uh, I was showing earlier, a stone structure. It's not matter, but it's bigger and, and more massive. It's uh, Clifton Manor in Germantown. This was a um, site where uh, very near Philadelphia, there was a back and forth to take Philadelphia and regain it. Uh, the British wanted it to kind of break the uh, morale of the Americans because it was an important city. And this was an outpost area, Germantown, uh, now a suburb. But uh, the British hold up in this house, like Nassau Hall, because again, the walls were very thick. and uh, in this case, the Americans were not successful, and they were pretty much um, beaten severely. These weren't huge battles in terms of population. Some of these battles were not. I mean, might have been 400 on the side, uh, but they were important pivotal uh, battles. There's one great story here that I mentioned in the book. It seems silly, but I thought it was interesting for what it revealed. After this battle, I think it was just a one-day event, uh, Washington and his men noticed there's a lot of dead bodies around here. There was on this picture, most of the Americans. The day after, they were looking in their rooms, so to speak. And Washington's men noticed there was a dog roaming around on the American side of this uh, battlefield. And it had a collar that said General Howe. <laughs> it's hard to believe. And that's why I thought this story was interesting. Washington actually seeks out to return the dog to General Howe with a letter written by Gen uh, Alexander Hamilton, who's his secretary from the battlefield. Now, I think that letter exists. I mean, it's a very formal letter, but we, the dog is missing. We want to return. I mean, who does this, right? You know, you've got bloody bodies. This is your enemy, and you're returning the dog. Um, but if you understand the chivalry and the class structure of officers, they thought of themselves as gentlemen. And the irony is, <laughs> Washington, until this becomes an independent country, is still British, right? So they think of themselves in this class 
of aristocratic gentlemen, and this is what you do. It's the courtly thing to do. Uh, and I don't know what, uh, we don't have a record of what House said. I'm sure he said thank you to somebody. Uh, and also, in a more extreme example, when Ben McDonald uh, secretly slips away to the British side, Arnold actually has the gall to write to Washington. I left some of my trunk of clothes at West Point, where he was the head of the uh, fort. It wasn't a military camp. And Washington returns his trunk of clothes. <laughs> but again, the officers, they do this. We have no knowledge. For better or worse, we've lost that sense of honor. We don't fight duels every half hour because you insulted somebody. But that honor was so great then that they did that. Now, this is Valley Forge. I'm sure you would have guessed. I'm going to read a little excerpt from Valley, my chapter on Forge. I won't go into this too much. This is an interesting, um, kind of watch the time, but I think we're doing all right. Major John Andre. Does that ring a bell to anybody? I see some nodding heads. There's some real historians there. It's not known to that many people. Uh, he was a British spy. I kind of mixed things up a little bit here. But it's an incredible story. And um, he uh, collaborated with Benedict Arnold before the Americans knew that Benedict Arnold was defecting to the other side. The uh, Benedict Arnold gave Major John Andre secret plans to this fort at West Point, as I was mentioning earlier. And uh, he is caught in Tappan, New York, walking through the woods or an old trail by three American militiamen who spotted him and stopped him and didn't know who he was. And they said, Could you um, take off your jacket? You know, in case there's somebody suspicious that you might be carrying this or that. And a couple of the guys said, I'll let him go. We got Sam Chowder to eat over and so, you know, forget about it. Uh, but one guy said, wait a minute, check his boots. <laughs> and I checked his boots and there were these secret plans that had all this information that we not to go into it, but it was valuable to the British. And uh, so a little tribunal was taking place. Washington is brought down from wherever he was, and they uh, agreed that he should be executed as a spy. And the morbid reality is that uh, Andre actually writes a letter. And we're talking about a little town where this all took place. Uh, I slipped it under Washington's door or something where he was staying and pleaded to have him be shot by a firing squad. Can you imagine? Versus being hanged by a tree because an officer, died, a soldier dies gloriously if he's shot by a firing squad. And we don't know this stuff now. <laughs> it would just seem like, who cares, right? I'm going to die. But this mattered a great deal. Washington refused, perhaps because Nathan Hale was also hanged. <laughs> he didn't get shot by a virus plant before that. Now, to this picture, though, which is a Andre sitting in a little prison for one day before he's executed after he's been captured. He was a very uh, interesting person in British society, a young man, very dashing, and very artistic. And he did a self-portrait of himself in ink. I wanted to include all my work, this original work in the book, so I did a drawing of his drawing. He actually did a little portrait. And on some crazy level, God bless him, if you care about Major John Andre, because he seemed like a sympathetic figure uh, in many respects. Um, he somehow knew that if he did that portrait, he might be talked about 250 years later in Francis' time, where other people may not be. But the second miracle is I found that this little drawing exists and you can go get it and hold it in your hands at the Yale Art Gallery. They have this. It's a four by six piece of paper folded over. You can request, you don't have to go to anything in Yale. You have to ask a day or two ahead of time, they'll bring it out for you. And that's quite something. Well, last bit of the story is that uh, he was buried in Tappan, New York. And 40 years after the revolution, Judge III, the King George, was still the king. And uh, he requested that uh, the body of uh, Andre be brought to Westminster Abbey and exhumed. The Americans by then didn't care. So I went to London, and there was a huge grave, uh, whatever you call sculptural uh, monument to Major John Andre, so he could be recognized as dying like a martyr. Um, 
This is a, a little known story of the revolution. Uh, this is at West Point, now a military academy. But uh, these are chains in a, uh, of a remaining links of a chain that was used to string across the Hudson. If some of you know this story, to prevent the British ships from going up and down at will. And uh, most of the links are gone. Again, this is not a huge achievement to do now to make a link of chains. But again, we're talking about very primitive technology. And these big links, each one's 100 pounds. And to put them together and you know, just try to imagine that there's rudimentary stuff and there's a war going on at the same time. Uh, but they did it, it turned out to be very successful and did thwart the British. But we, they celebrate these links in this little monument at West Point that you can see. Uh, this is Benjamin Franklin's uh, Printing house, uh, that one of the few things that exists that he would have been connected with. He had a little print shop. His house is long gone, so we don't have that kind of a thing to uh, experience him historically. Uh, but he did have a print shop, and this was a print uh, mechanism that I did a painting of and kind of put a figure in there and give a flavor of what the old printing process was like. So you can go to Philadelphia and see this. This is a monument to uh, Thomas Paine in New Rochelle, New York, of all places. Thomas Paine deserves to be a founding father, although he's born in England, I believe. But he wrote the uh, seminal work that really fired up the uh, Patriots. Anyone know that book? Common Sense. You go to the bonus round. Yes, Common Sense is considered the greatest publishing story in the history of the United States, in the sense that more books per capita, is that the term per population, were sold uh, of that book than any other book. There were like 350,000 copies sold, but the population was teeny. So equivalently, it'd be like 100, 300 million, I don't know what the heck it would be today, but talking about a, a huge segment of the population read this. And uh, those of you who read it, it's not long, he didn't say anything new. Freedom, monarchy is bad, all of those things. But he said it in a way, in this beautiful language that was accessible to the average person, not dumbing them down, but language that didn't necessarily touch on Aristotle and Locke, like Jefferson and Adams were. But he does it in these famous phrases you've heard, was it sunshine, patriot, and whatever those, yeah. Uh, but also, he, you know, he was very truthful. He was a serious thinker and a great writer. And poetry really excelled this book to become instrumental. Uh, at the very end of his life, he died, unfortunately, impoverished. He was impoverished. He was a complicated figure, had a lot of tips with people. Um, but the United States uh, gave him a uh, in service to his country. They gave him a farm in New Rochelle. And in those days, it was just farmland. And there's a monument there. Uh, this is the swamps of Georgia and South Carolina that I touch on because so much of the war was fought in the South. Francis Marion, if anybody knows that name, was a, a heroic figure, kind of a Robin Hood-like figure that fought in the woods with his band of guerrilla uh, war, uh, warfare. Uh, and uh, they would come out and attack the British and they marched along the safety of the coast and throw them off course. It was all defensive tactics, but it freaked the British out enough. They never knew when. Francis Marion and his group were coming, uh, and it was quite effective. The British had no intention of going into this mosquito-ridden, infested area, and they would never have gotten their way out. So Marion would hide back in the bushes or around the swamps and uh, continue to raid them, uh, among others who would have done the similar thing. But Marion is the most famous. And uh, he was so famous, he's forgotten now, I think. So famous that there was a Walt Disney miniseries done in 1950. Uh, oh, I've forgotten the name of it, but it's based on Francis Marion. This name is left in history now. This is, of course, uh, Mount Tulsa. There's a five-star hotel in Old Charleston. Oh, the Marion? Called the Francis Marion Hotel, oh. right on the square. That's nice to know. And there are a lot of counties and, you know, monuments that were erected. Uh, same. Uh, Mount Vernon, I talked about him actually, uh, this house actually in my previous book on American President. So I didn't want to repeat that. 
but I did focus instead on, on George Washington's gardens at Mount Vernon because he was considered himself a planter above all, perhaps even more than a president. He wanted to be known as Virginia planter, which was a great aristocratic status uh, associated with that, that group of gentlemen. And uh, so I touched on all of the seeds. You know, Jefferson gets all the credit for being an obsessive about the seeds and the plantings and his gardens, but Washington was like that too. Uh, and uh, so that's my entry in this book on, on learning about that. This is St. Paul's Chapel, which I mentioned, uh, which you can visit today, uh, which Washington worshiped at while he lived in the city. This is Lafayette. Uh, Unfortunately, these slides are uh, cut off by the top. I don't know why, but not to get the book. Uh, this is in Lafayette Park in, in uh, Washington, D.C. Lafayette, I touched on earlier, is a huge figure, fascinating man, and uh, uh, a close friend of Washington. Um, Washington was very affected by Lafayette's plea to end uh, slavery. Uh, he didn't obviously get far enough, but Washington took him quite seriously, and they were very devoted to each other. And there's a lot of letters back and forth. And Lafayette, for his role, the Brandywine battle in a Yorktown, deserves, of course, to be a founding father, although he was French. This is, uh, if you think it's Monticello, it's close. But Jefferson had a second home outside of Monticello that he also designed, as you probably know, he designed Monticello in a similar style. It's quite similar, but it's a smaller version. But he wanted to get away from Monticello. It's uh, embarrassment of riches. But he became a celebrity, and people would just walk up to his door at Monticello and knock and say, hey, I want a, uh, well, I can't say he wanted a selfie because that, that wouldn't have been popular. But they wanted some kind of uh, access to a famous figure and he would escape uh, for long stretches in Poplar Forest, this house that he also designed. One of the great architects in American history, although he only designed five or six buildings, uh, he did it as a pastime, but he revolutionized what we consider a regional architecture. He took these Greek and Roman uh, Palladian ideas, but incorporated American materials, the brick and the trim and other touches that made them uniquely American. And he deserves the uh, respect of architectural historians. This is a building in Wethersfield, Connecticut, outside Hartford, which you can visit, uh, where a famous conference took place between, I mentioned the French allies, General Rochambeau was the great French general who collaborated with Washington. He was given orders by Louis XVI, I believe, the 15th or 16th, to collaborate with Washington and give him respect he doesn't have 12 last names like you, being a French aristocrat, but he, he's the leader of the environmental army. And, and vice versa, they had uh, respect for each other, although Rochambeau spoke no English. He had to have notes written down. But nobody was there exactly. We don't know exactly what went on, but uh, the collaboration was at least from the actions that we have. We don't know the intrigue necessarily, but there must have been enough of uh, collaboration and, and respect that they could agree on the ideas that ultimately led to Yorktown. Washington was very adamant about taking back Manhattan. There was a thorn in his side that Manhattan, Lower Manhattan was occupied by the British for eight years, <clears throat> the entire war, and Washington wanted to get that back. Washington said, you really have no chance. There's no way you're going to get Manhattan. <coughs> Um, not even with the French Navy going in there because the, we can't get close enough to the island, the border was too shallow, all of this and that. So Washington gave that up and uh, was convinced to go to Yorktown. Uh, that Washington felt was the strategic location. You could get Cornwallis uh, there and bottle him up in the Chesapeake and uh, turn the course of the war, which happened. Uh, this is Rochambeau, a statue of him in Newport, where he was first stationed when he came over from France. He sat there with his many ships for a few months while Americans were figuring out how to make a collaboration work. And there's this very nice uh, statue that's been renovated looking over the bay. This is the Battle of the uh, Battlefield of Yorktown, uh, not as pastoral perhaps to the soldiers back then, 
but you can visit that. It's a National Historic Site. This is, uh, I think this is coming to the end. This is a building in Annapolis, Maryland, the State House, exactly the way it was, but Washington went there for an important, um, and there's probably a painting of it here somewhere, an important moment in his career in America's independence and, and, and new nation forming. Uh, he resigned his commission as officer and decided that he was going to return to his farm in, in, in the Potomac, and I'm on the Potomac. Virginia. Now, why is this a big deal? It sounds about as sexy as getting a new driver's license, it's paperwork. But you have to realize that Washington was he's certainly a demigod now in many circles of American history, right? But even then, shortly after the revolution, he was revered as such a scheme. People who wrote the Declaration want to actually make him king. How does that make sense? But this is the stature that he had, and he could have soaked up that power and uh, taken it for all it's worth. But he then wanted nothing more to do with it. He'd done his service and let the country develop as it would. Of course, they asked to be president, so he can't do that. But the Zionist Commission was an act of humility that George III was impressed. He said, if that man resigns his commission, wow. And he doesn't want to become a king like me. He's an incredible person. He has respect for him. Cool. That's it. So what I thought I would do before I go to questions, as we move us swiftly along here, I'm going to read an excerpt from the book. And then, so if you have a question, start thinking of it now. Um, this is from the section on Valley Forge. I have a chapter on Francis Tavern, but hey, wait, yes, so you're learning about that. I don't want to read that. If you Google George Washington at Valley Forge, chances are you'll come across a picture by Arnold Freiburg, painted in 1975. It shows Washington kneeling alone in the snow, his hands clasped in prayer. Washington was a deeply religious man, and it's possible he did in fact pray. He certainly had reason to. Some 2,000 of his men had died that winter and early spring of 1777 to 78, many of them disease or starvation, and what became a horrific six months. On February 16, 1778, in the midst of the crisis, the general wrote to Governor Clinton of New York. For some days past, there's been little less than a famine in camp. A part of the army has been a week without any kind of flesh and rest for three or four days. Naked and starving as they are, we cannot enough admire the incomparable patience and fidelity of the soldiery. Washington pleaded with Congress for more supplies, but received little for his pains. Congress was hampered by scarcity of money, failure of credit, and an inefficient administrative system mired in bureaucratic wrangling. Meanwhile, Washington's army was reeling from a string of defeats in Pennsylvania during the spring of 1777 at Paoli, Brandywine, and Germantown. Each had been an attempt to win back Philadelphia, a major colonial city, as we've talked about. Washington could no longer afford to wait for Congress to act. He tried instead to purchase food from the locals around Valley Forge, but met with resistance. Farmers would rather sell to the English, whose currency was more valuable. Furthermore, some of these farmers were reluctant because of their loyalist leanings. Why support a fight against people who had the same language, religion, and customs? Pennsylvania, like New York and most of the South, had a sizable population that sided with the crown. In desperation, Washington was forced to confiscate food supplies from the neighboring residents, something he felt morally opposed to. Given these hardships at Valley Forge, then, how did the Continental Army stay together? And how did the men continue to fight? In the fall of 2019, I set out to find some answers. Traveling by car, I headed out of New York City to a Valley Forge National Park. The address on my navigation system read 1400 North Outer Line Drive King of Prussia, PA. I took I-95 south through New Jersey and into Pennsylvania. For much of the drive, the only scenery seemed to be numbing stretches of smokestacks and oil storage tanks. The interstate was bumper to bumper, fumes were sickening. And when I finally got near the park, I was confronted with shopping malls and high-rise developments. This wasn't what I expected from my, quote, scenic tour. Things changed, however, as soon as I passed through the gates of Valley Forge. 
White lines and exit ramps gave way to the beauty of open fields, mature trees, and stone walls. Wooden fence posts lined the narrow curving roads. I arrived at the visitor center and made a beeline for the reception desk. I was told to contact Park Ranger Bill Trotman, who'd been assigned to give me a private tour at three o'clock that day. The office assistant wrote down his cell number for me and I called him. I'm running a little late, Bill said. I was just firing muskets near one of the cabins. Perfect, I thought I'm in the right place. Shortly thereafter, I spotted a figure in the gift shop where I'd been standing, dressed in a brown and green uniform. It was Bill, a big man with thick white hair, broad shoulders and a husky voice. He reminded me actually of a football coach. Sorry to keep you, he said. I was changing out of my soldier's clothes. I was doing a reenactment for a school group. Let's hop in my car. It was a late November afternoon, but Bill assured me we would get in as much of the tour as possible before evening set in. We climbed into his white SUV just as it began to drizzle and wove through the park's serpentine byways. This area was originally established by Quakers in the 1740s, Bill told me. They founded the Mountjoy Forge here and formed a small industrial community. Over time, they expanded the ironworks and built mills and houses. The surrounding acreage was rich farmland for growing wheat, Indian corn, hay, and rye. Washington's quartermaster, Thomas Mifflin, scouted this area near the Shoko River and decided it was a good place to camp because it was secluded between the two hills. Our first stop was a row of log cabins. These were built by the soldiers themselves on Washington's orders, Bill said. There was prize money for the best ones. Construction began immediately upon arrival at the camp on December 19, 1777, because the troops had no barracks to sleep in and winter was setting in. The men grew up in farms in New England, so they knew how to build things. They made the chimneys out of wood because it was too labor intensive to make stone ones. Originally, there were hundreds of these cabins in long rows. We have 10 replicas on display. We entered one of the cabins. The fire was crackling in the hearth. I eyed the bunk beds and the dirt floor. The room was dark and damp. The exposed walls were caked with mud and straw to keep out the draft. There were no windows. Poor air circulation, I learned, led to stuffy, often foul-smelling spaces that were ripe for spreading disease. You can imagine how many trees were cut down in these cabins, Bill went on. They were built to house some 11,000 soldiers. There were about 12 men per cabin, each of which was about 14 by 16 in size. They also needed wood to keep the bake ovens running. There were thousands of loaves of bread needed a day to feed the soldiers. Bill spoke passionately about the history of Valley Forge. The rebel army had been in dire need of basic necessities like blankets, he said, and the desertion rate was close to 20%. He talked about the meager rations, often just watery soup made from bone marrow. I hope your dinner tonight will be better. Uh, sometimes the men borrowed fat. In 2019, Bill had been working at Valley Forge for already 27 years. I was a high school teacher for 10 years before that, he said. It takes a lot of training to be a ranger. The National Parks requires us, in addition to our history education, to be peace officers. That means instructions on using firearms, driving emergency vehicles, and arrest techniques. In between my hours here, I'm actually writing a book on Benjamin Franklin. I have a couple of chapters left. Back in the car, we continued on our tour our next stop was George Washington's headquarters, a field stone building with white trim, characteristic of the Delaware Valley. Bill pointed out a flag in front, a replica that had 13 stars, one for each of the colonies. This was one of the first flags of the new republic, he said. In front of this house, there would have been Washington's elite guards assigned to protect him, Bill said. There were about 50 of them, kind of like the Secret Service today. You needed a password before they let you in. Our final destination was a bronze statue, this one of a man in a long cloak and hat standing at the top of a stone pedestal. Baron Van Steuben, Bill said. He was an unsung hero of the revolution. He was a former officer in the Prussian War. Some question whether he was an actual baron. Regardless, 
He had a lot of experience in military maneuvers and drills, and had written a manual on the subject. He was hired to teach the ragtag troops how to get in shape. By the time the Americans left Valley Forge for good in June 1778, the soldiers had been transformed into a disciplined army, Bill told me. Come back again December 19th, Bill said. That's when we do a reenactment of the army entering a camp on that same day in 1777. I dress up sometimes, but not every year. I'm getting a bit old for this kind of stuff. I know my time is coming because a third grader came up to me the other day and asked if I'd actually ever met George Washington. Can you believe it? I said no, but I did know Thomas Jefferson. Thank you. Thank you very much. I'm going to open up the questions. I was just going to mention I didn't at the outset that uh, you know this is a different time, and the founding fathers are rightly being questioned for a lot of things. The big elephant in the room, uh, slavery, uh, and other uh, discussions that aren't so savory. <laughs> um, and when the opportunity came, I did talk about that in the book because, of course, it's not something that many of us were my age grew up learning in our high school, but of course, it's it's a, a major uh, part of the history that needs to be addressed. And uh, actually did more than I originally planned. I mean, less than I originally planned because my publisher said, well, there's a balance. That's not that kind of a, this isn't that kind of a book. But I did touch on that when I could. And um, maybe for another book, I'll elaborate on that. But I didn't want to give them a free pass. There were points that I saw opportunities to discuss those, those topics. If there's anyone that we have a few minutes, and I'd be glad to answer any questions, of course, sign books. But uh, if there's a question that comes to mind, is your opportunity? This one. Yeah. Um, so you talked about you know, going to the places and experiencing it. Um, so we, we actually tried to go to West Point to see some of the things that are there and found out that we could not. Get oh, that's too West bad. Point. Is that because of COVID? Because no, I found... it's a military base and we're civilians. Because uh, oh, I had no trouble. Maybe it was because I was doing a book, although I don't think I went into great detail. But anyway, I'm sorry yeah, to hear that. I was wondering if you had any like tips for getting into oh, right. places that are Tom, you're writing a book. Tom, <laughs> <laughs> I told you to go there. Well, I'm sorry you had that experience. Uh, you yeah. do tours, scheduled tours. Okay. Maybe that would have yeah, to they, be. They put you on a bus, I think. And okay. You have to sign up. Okay. So that's the way to do it then. And maybe I was on the, whatever, I was doing a book, but sounds like you have to plan in advance. So that's a good tip. I'll remember that in my other talks to mention to people. Some of these have a little nuances on how to, to see these things, but 90% of what's here you can. I mean, Princeton doesn't require you to be a student. You can go see that building. Um, another question? You have one in the back. Uh, are there places uh, on your to go list? For a sequel or something? Or another, another, another picture, have you covered them all? You mean these Oh, you mean the ones that I wanted to do? Did I put them all in? Yeah. Uh, no. Uh, there were another at least 15 or 20 that there just wasn't enough room to do a whole big essay and another painting. I did include those in the back, though, as short descriptions of sites that I think are worth visiting and exploring, but I didn't do pictures with them. But um, they're noted in brief. And if I could find them, that would be great. Uh, but of course, I can't find them myself. But they're in the back of the book, each about a paragraph long. And uh, oh, yeah, here's some of them. The Saratoga Battlefield, Van Cortland House in the Bronx, Nathaniel Green, a great uh, general, his house in Rhode, in Rhode Island, Brandywine Battlefield, the city of Savannah, Georgia. A house in Delaware that was interesting. Gilbert Stewart's homestead, great portraitist of many of the founding fathers. Those were things I wanted to include, as I say, to not all about battles, right? Um, and uh, a portrait of Benjamin Rush, a lesser known figure, but a great figure in the revolution. There's a wonderful portrait of him in the National Portrait Gallery. Anyway, so there's some in the back. And a uh, Jewish cemetery. Uh, one of the oldest cemeteries in the United States uh, where uh, soldiers actually had to sleep in one encampment. Um, but it has a famous uh, 
financier, a Jewish financier that helped fund the revolution. He's buried there, Mr. Solomon. Um, but there were others, yes. I mean, there's probably 200, 300 worthy sites. It's just, you know, and I wasn't, there's a limited budget there, traveling everywhere. Go ahead, you had a question. What's your process for doing the paintings? Do you set up while you're there? Do you take a picture? Yes, uh, when the weather's good and it's not raining, and I've set up sometimes I've set up these appointments with rangers and stuff, so I can't turn around and say, "Oh, it's bad weather, so I'm not coming." So those I would have to sit and make a sketch and uh, make mental notes. But most of the time, I set out to bring my little stool and apparatus. I like to paint outdoors and plop myself down and do a, a picture on site. And then, you know, if it's late in the day, I'll finish it in my studio. I like to get that initial impression down the paint and pencil, so at least I can draw from that when I literally have uh, I get back to uh, doing a finished product. Thank you. Are you artistic yourself? Or? All right, so she's very shy. It's probably in the Metropolitan Museum. She's been planted here by the museum to test me out. I've got a whole exhibit coming up. Any other questions? Yeah. Was there anything uh, that really surprised you in your research you came across that you didn't know before? Uh, well, for lack of repeating myself, but I, uh, yes, in the beginning, I really didn't realize the impact the battles in the South had. I just didn't know that. Maybe you guys are smarter than I am, but uh, that was very interesting. This battle of Calpins, Key Mountain, uh, just a lot of stuff that went on. And Nathaniel Green was assigned to the Southern campaign. And here's a similar strategy. It's not brain science. I mean, you're dealing with a gigantic army, the largest army that the world has ever seen, and a bunch of, you know, ragtag troops. So the same strategy, defensive uh, tactic to just wear the British down. But that's not so easy to do, even that tactic. But Nathaniel Green was very good at that. And uh, and uh, the British won most of the battles in the South, but it was like they were like they weren't decisive, and the, and the Americans weren't giving up. So it was like a victory every time because they were just like back in Parliament. You know, the British had lots of colonies. <laughs> you know, they owned islands. They owned I don't know what. I don't know if they owned India. Forgive me if I'm wrong. But there was a gigantic empire. They liked the thought of having America, no doubt. But after a while, after seven or eight years. You know, this is supposed to be over in a couple of weeks. Um, one of the reasons why they put 300 ships in the New York Harbor was they thought they'd scare the, pardon my French, the crap out of the uh, Americans. And they said, oh, we got it. <laughs> sorry we even brought this up. But it didn't work. And they, that was tended to really squelch this thing. The Battle of Long Island, they put the, those 30,000 troops on the, in, on the Queens Boulevard. <laughs> and uh, they, uh, they almost finished it there, if you know that story. There's a famous uh, Dunkirk kind of moment where the British had really done a number, as you might imagine, with that. Uh, the Americans had 10,000, the British 30,000, um, a much more sophisticated corporate. And the battle was over, Americans really uh, severely beaten. And Washington is uh, thinking to himself, you know, I'm, I'm equivalent of like Brooklyn Heights, he's sitting there with his. Uh, men and that night, and he could have called it quits right there, uh, and that's what the British expected. And maybe they you can second guess forever, but uh, the British stayed on their side of the camp, and Washington stayed on his side that night. And I'm sure the British thought in the morning they'll sign capitulation papers, and this will be over, and we'll do this like gentlemen because they really bought them. But Washington decided no, he wasn't going to give up. And in the middle of the night, he rounded up all these rowboats from the local farmers and crossed the East River and lived another day. Uh, there's a whole story about this that's in the book. I don't want to give too much detail. But the British woke up and went probably, I'm imagining all of this, but like, hey, over there, you, there's got a paper you can sign, surrender, and they're gone. Yeah. Uh, they had left somebody to make fires so it looked like they were still there. But they said, wait, there's... 50 men here. Where did they go? Um, I forgot why I was telling you all this. Uh, you asked, what was your yeah, was the most surprising thing? Yeah, right. So those were uh, those were uh, stories that I uh, I found fascinating. Um, and um, 
Yeah. And uh, there is a house called the Old Stone House, which is replica, but it still exists. Anyone been to that? Okay. Uh, forgive me your name again. Amy. Now, this is, I spoke to her, no matter. This wasn't like a magic trick, and I planted her. She came and she knows as much about this as I do. An avid reader, coconut plant. But she's a very avid reader, uh, and so I'm not surprised. You <laughs> then, um, but uh, was there another question? Yes, you have you have seven comments, raised hands. Oh my goodness. No questions, just compliments. Oh, that's nice. Uh, so maybe we have time for one final question. You'll be on YouTube forever. What do you ever consider doing perhaps sites that weren't on the North American continent, but were important to the revolution? For example, Trincomalee in India. I mean, like there are like lots of places that were little battles that are technically part of the American Revolution, but maybe were fought by the French and the British. Or maybe well, I if I had thought of that, I, I would certainly have been open to that. I mean, the book's done now, but um, I mean, the only one I mentioned was Westminster Abbey because uh, Major Andre was, you know, he buried there. Um, but I thought that it was, uh, you know open season to be creative about that. That would have been a creative thing. I could have talked about the islands in the Caribbean, which were battlegrounds uh, for the French and English uh, that were, I mean, you know, the, the, the British really cared more about their islands in the Caribbean with the sugar than America. There was a huge, uh, you know, trade there. Um, so they almost went, I oh, forget the, you know, let's get to keep those islands. The British and French were always fighting. Go ahead. That actually matches what I was told by the English family that I ran into at the Liberty Bell Museum in Philadelphia. I overheard them speaking in very rich accent. Perusing all the displays, I walked up and I said, How is this presented to you at home in the UK as part of UK history? Because here it's like presented as the central fact of yeah, human yeah. existence. <laughs> Um, and they said, oh, it's a, it, it's a minor thing. It's just one small little half of a chapter in the, the overall story of the empire. It's an unfortunate little dust up in the colonies. Oh, well, we, we lost America. Well, okay, fine, so we can go on. And we certainly got much bigger after that. That was it. Yeah, no, that's the same. That's how it's presented to, to the English students. Right, it didn't really affect them, except they lost, well, they didn't know what they were losing in the long run. But at the time, well, they lost a significant training and, and, and goods and things. But they had those in lots of places. I was, you got me interested totally as a non-secretarial way, but about reading about ancient Greek and Roman history recently, and uh, the, 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 the Roman Empire is so vast, you know, it was primitive revolution, but now you're going 2,000 years earlier. How they maintained this empire, the entire Caribbean, absolutely, the entire Mediterranean, every single edge of that was Roman Empire. And they also were fighting battles all over the place that they lose one you know, big deal because there's so many. Um, but to those little pockets, they were everything like here. Um, and uh, so, yeah, it's interesting. Uh, it's not, I mean, they were probably not, a, it wasn't a proud moment to have lost America. So I'm sure they don't delve into it as much in their books, but I think, you know, given the size of the empire, it probably was relatively minor, certainly compared to our story. Um, and uh, it's really fascinating. It is kind of like a civil war because these are English people fighting against each other, right? Uh, saying everything. What was interesting is, I just mentioned that I learned this, I don't know if it was surprising for Maya, but it's a surprising historical fact that the British discovered when they came to the Battle of Long Island as soldiers. They were shot going through, I guess, Flatbush or <laughs> these farms as they were making their way to fight battles. How well the Americans lived. They lived in very nice little colonial houses, salt box structures. They'd already been here for 150 years, right? I don't know, since 1620. And um, they saw the furniture was very nice. And they were living better than the soldiers were living in the dumpy. Um, small village structures somewhere in, in, in England. And they thought, wow, you know, because I'm, 
I hate to make comparisons with Ukraine and Russia. You know, there's too many variables. But I think, you know, they had a conception that we're dealing with like primitive types. I'm sure many of the soldiers, they're also 17, you know, many of the soldiers, but uh, I'm sure they thought they were coming to a very primitive place. Um, and, uh, and they were quite surprised at how well they did it. Uh, these were small farmhouses, I'm sure, but you know, well built, and they've been here for a long time. Many generations have already formed uh, a legacy and skills. Uh, so unless there's one last question. Okay, you go. This is good, actually. I like questions. For those out in the audience, thank you. For this will be our last one for the No, because right, you got to move on. Okay. Are you familiar with John Troyani, illustrator? Is he contemporary or from the past? Well, it's a contemporary, yes. What's his name again? John Troyani. No, I don't. He illustrates the uh, battlefield sites of the American Revolution. His works were uh, up until recently on display at the uh, Museum of the American Revolution. Oh, Philadelphia. Yes. Yeah. I should know that. And I probably have seen them because I went to that museum, but I didn't catch the name. But he's a historical painter. Yeah, it's, a great, yeah. it's a great skill. John Trumbull, uh, a patriot and an artist, did reenactment scenes in his paintings too at the old museum. You can see them. The museum in Philadelphia is great. It's a new museum, it's about 10 years old. Well, I want to thank you all for coming. And if you do want me to sign a book, I'll sign my signature like the Declaration of Independence uh, signatures. Uh, thank you again. Thank you, uh, Adam, for that wonderful talk. Um, again, as you said, if you're here tonight and you would like the book, it will be here. If you are visiting the museum in the near future, check it out in our gift shop, amongst other things. Um, thank you to those of you who have donated to the museum. You help us keep our mission of sharing the American Revolutionary Era alive. If you would like to check in on our upcoming programs, you can join our mailing list at ferocistavernmuseum.org. Our next lecture is on December 8th, and important to note, it is virtual only. We will not be having an in-person lecture in December, only online. Um, but we hope to see you on the Zoom and here at the museum in person another day. Thank you. Thank you.